0: Hey everybody. Welcome. I'm super excited tonight. I am not speaking. (laughs) Take that as you will. Uh, I'm James Boley. My wife and I are the pastors of Simo Chi Alpha. And uh, tonight we have a wonderful guest speaker. We're really excited to have him here. Mark is going to share with us some really um, important stuff that we are going to be talking about more and more as you spend time in Chi Alpha. Uh, so we have this thing that we say at Simo Chi Alpha, because we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. First Thessalonians 2.8. I love that you remember where it's at. I love that because, well, I, I forget to say that sometimes when Kim is good and reminds me that I need to say that because you need to know where it is. Here's the deal. Mark is going to talk to us a little bit more about the gospel of God, the good news about Jesus tonight, all right? And I want you to hear uh, what he's saying. Mark is a missionary. He, uh, he's going to tell you a little bit more about all that stuff. But the, the first time I got to uh, really hear a message from Mark, it was on a devotional. Uh, we talked about this India uh, virtual experience that we got to be a part of. And, and Mark was doing a devotion on uh, uh, basically missions for this, this India trip, and honestly, it just really, really just uh, helped me to clarify some of the things that I I have said before in the past, but it was really awesome hearing him take some of these pivotal aspects of what the good news is and boil them down to these really simple, uh, easy-to-grasp, um, tangible little tidbits. So we're going to welcome Mark to come up here, and he's going to tell us all about himself and what he does and, and who Jesus is, so welcome in please
1: thank you how's it going yeah my first time over here to Semo. yeah so i live in missouri right now after living i I, my wife and i and our kids lived in the middle east for almost 30 years and i know that's older than like longer than most of you almost all of you have been alive because uh, my kids are older than most of you, uh, which is part of why I love Chi Alpha so much. You know, for a couple of years ago, I was kind of like, I've been doing kiafa for a long time, and uh, I don't come from a Chi Alpha background, but I just, God put a passion in my heart for Chi Alpha students. And the older I got, I, there was this one time where I was like, Lord, should I still be doing this? You know, because I'm kind of at that, you know, they say there's four stages of a man's life. You believe in Santa Claus. You don't believe in Santa Claus, you are Santa Claus. (laughs) You look like Santa Claus. So, you know, pretty clear which stage I'm in, Uh, you know. So uh, I'm in the believe in Santa Claus stage, just in case you were wondering. Uh, So, uh, you know, and I just like, God, should I continue to do this? And, And yet I feel like students listen to me and I didn't quite get why. And I just realized that part of it, I think, is because I think of you as like spiritual children and me maybe as a spiritual father. And um, I I care for you and I respect you. And even though I feel like maybe I've made a little bit of a contribution to Chi Alpha over the years, I honestly feel like the students that I interact with and the student leaders that I interact with, they're a bigger blessing to my life than I am to them. And part of that is not even spiritual. Part of that is I am just absolutely committed to not getting old in my thinking. I can't control my body. I mean, that just happens, you know. Um, you know, hair falls out, hair turns gray, you know, at the time of my life where I want testosterone the most, my body uses it to grow hair out of my ears. So, you know, it, you know, sorry. Um, it's okay if we laugh a little bit, I hope, tonight, because we're going to talk about some serious things, too. But, you know, laughter is good medicine. And I'm actually convinced that in America, and particularly on the university campus, the greatest apologetic we can have you know what I mean by apologetic like the defense of the gospel the greatest defense of the gospel we can actually have in in this in these days is to be both happy and holy now they have to go together because I mean like you can go to a Chiefs game and at least at the beginning of the game this year who knows what'll happen uh, but you know you got a lot of happy people and, you know, a lot of that happiness is alcohol-induced, you know. But they're not going to be quite so happy later in the day and they're certain, or the next day. You know, so the world understands happiness, but it's based on circumstances or it's based on some artificial stimulus. We're talking about a happiness that's actually rooted in right standing with God. Like knowing we have eternal significance. And the joy that comes from that, and then happiness, as I like to refer to it, is joy expressed. Because I hear some people say, well, you know, as Christians, we're really not called to be happy. We're called to be joyful. I'm like, (laughs) if you got joy and it doesn't come out of your face, you're not joyful. (laughs) You know, like, I, I grew up around that kind of Christianity. And quite frankly, I don't want it. I want joy that actually leaks out and is happy, and, but I'm also called to be holy, holy that God is holy and he has told me that I am to be holy and holiness is not a list of external do's and don'ts, it's a desire to be close to God. It's like those things in my life, behavioral type issues, they just kind of line up automatically When I get close to God, you know, I I I, I used to say like this. My kids would fight like cats and dogs between each other, but with my if we were around, but if my parents were in the room, all of a sudden they like backed off. You know, like the the emotional temperature in the room went down because they somehow didn't want to do that in front of their grandparents. Um. It's kind of like that with me and God. You know, it's like, even if my heart is bent toward wandering away, understanding that he tracks me down, like he is relentlessly committed to me. I I hope, maybe this is for somebody in the room tonight. I want you to know God's actually more committed to you than you will ever be to him. You need to get that because when you understand how far Fiercely devoted God is to you, and how undeserving we are of that. The only response to that is obedient worship. The only appropriate response. So, anyway, we've been doing this for a long time. I I, I guess I could kind of show you how long we've been doing it if you put the. Yep, there you go. Um, You know. my kids like to refer to that as the Tom Selleck mustache. Um, the um, we've actually been missionaries so long that um, missionaries put these do these little cards that they give to people that you know they tack them up in their refrigerator or whatever and ask people to pray for them. Uh, we've been doing this so long that this is actually our second prayer card and our first one we didn't even have kids, um, and um, but we're a lot cuter in this one. Uh, so um, that's my lovely wife. If you go to that next slide, you'll see it picture of her. She is um, an amazing lady. She's the strongest woman I know. Uh, I do make a distinction between being strong and being tough. She's not tough at all, (laughs) Um, uh, but she is incredibly strong. She's way stronger than I am. Um, She's just an amazing woman, and she leads AGWM, so Assemblies of God World Missions. She leads all of their efforts to keep our missionaries on the field safe, and then if they do have a problem, and like one of them got kidnapped or something like that. They all have a phone number they're supposed to call. It's her number. So she does that for 2,800 missionaries. So that's the kind of person that I'm married to. And quite frankly, I'm scared of her. Um, So uh, uh, one day, she, she looks nice and innocent. And recently I said she looks nice and innocent, but she's really very naughty. And then I realized that in this context, naughty means something different um so you know uh yeah so she might be that too but that's not your business Uh, so sorry we have four kids and they're not adopted um so there you go Uh, um, um, sorry hey 30 been married 32 years and there's not anything I'd rather do than walk around Sam's Club and hold that woman's hand. I, I hope that for you. And it doesn't mean that our life has been easy, because we've actually done some things in some places that were quite challenging and we faced some things that were not pleasant. Um, you know, I've been arrested for being a missionary and held and then deported from a country and. Some other things that they, they, they go along with part of working in a pioneer context. But having that woman stand beside me and then her knowing that I'm standing beside her, unquestionably committed to her, I wish that for all of you. Um, she did, um, we were at a Christmas party a couple of years ago, because you know last year not, nobody had anything hardly, but you know, um, we, so it was about two years ago and we were sitting in a room and they were doing one of those icebreaker games. Does anybody like those? I mean, like every time somebody says they want to do one of those, I want to shoot them. You know, I don't even care where you're at on gun control. I just want to shoot them, you know, and, um, you know, or beat them with a stick, something. I don't care, you know, but uh, I hate those things. And my wife hates them even more than I do. And, uh, but they're going around the room. Oh, and by the way, I need to say, so, and I'm like the, Amy's probably like the youngest person in the room. So, you know, there are a lot of older people in this room we're talking about. And they're going around the table and they said, we want you to tell us two things that nobody knows about you except maybe your spouse. You know, they go around, they get to Amy, and Amy's not normally like this provocateur type person, but they get to her and she looks at them and (laughs) they're all very conservative, older, and she just looks at them and says, I have a really big tattoo and I carry a gun. And their mouths kind of like fall open, you know, and they're like, Is she serious? You know? And then they get to me and they're like, I like women with really big tattoos who carry guns. You know? And then I realized I should say, I like this woman who has a big, you know. Because it is Missouri, you know, and um, it wasn't like an invitation or something, Um, you know, but anyway That's our family uh, four kids Uh, go through those really quick and just show them to you So the next slides our daughter Uh, All of our kids have Arabic names Um, We didn't do that to ingratiate ourselves with local people. That would have been stupid Uh, We did it because when God called us to the Arab world, we really felt like he gave us a heart transplant uh, because you can't win people you don't love. They'll see through it really quickly if you're doing what you're doing out of duty. And we just really loved being in the Middle East, and we love Middle Eastern peoples. And so that's why we named our kids these Arabic names. But Noor is the Arabic word for light. In the Arabic Bible, Jesus is referred to as Nur al-Alam, the light of the world. Um, she's an elementary school teacher, very artistic. Uh, she actually lives in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, she teaches kindergarten at the school she attended kindergarten at. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Uh, she's 28 and wonderful young lady. Then we have three boys. That's our oldest son, Habib, and his wife. You can tell by looking at him, he's a real conformist. Um, he, he told me one day, he said, uh, he was about 16, and he said, we were having like the father-son, you know, just sort of just really hanging out, but it was like, You know, he's like a junior. I'm like, hey, bud, you kind of like thinking about what you might want to do, you know, what you might want to study, whatever. And he goes, yeah, like, um," you know, he's kind of sheepishly acting. I'm like, you know, he goes, I think I'd really like to be a musician. As a father, you know, I got two things going on in my head at the exact same moment. One, be a good dad, be a good dad, be a good dad, be supportive, be a good dad, you know. The other one is, I don't want him living in my basement forever, you know. Um, The good news is, is that he has actually found the one occupation with less job security than a musician. He now wants to be a poet. Um, But uh, he's actually freakishly smart and an amazing poet. He's won awards from the Poet Laureate. Um, he's really, really gifted, and uh, we're very proud of him. And he's married, so he's not my problem anymore. Um, and by the way, uh, Habib is the Arabic word for the one I love. Yes, the rest of my children do have inferiority complexes, but, um, yeah. so. Then we have our uh, middle son, Nabil. He's our funny, compassionate, studied business, and now working as a chef. Thank you for all those thousands of dollars of money I wasted. Um, no, he's a great guy. He, he lives in Laramie, Wyoming. You might ask why. Yes, we ask why. Um, I have a feeling when January comes, he's gonna ask why, because you know it's already snowed there three times. And they don't even call it snow if it's less than three inches. So yeah, exactly. And he grew up in the Middle East, in a desert. So anyway, anyway he's there, be- a typical missionary kid, he's there because of community, there because of friends. And so, um, but he's a great young man. And Nabil is the Arabic word for noble, person of noble character. And this is our youngest son, Ahmad. Uh, Ahmad goes to Mizzou. Uh, he's a chemical engineering major. Uh, Very smart, um, honors program, full ride. Um, I mean, they pay him to go to school. Yeah, great deal. I mean, he's worked really, really hard, very hard worker, and he's also very, very far away from Jesus. And, um, you know, so I pray twice a day. I pray more than that, actually. But I pray two times specifically in every day. Uh, My phone has two alarms that go off every single day. One of them is at 1002. You know what that's for? Chiaphanation should know what that's for. Uh, 1002 is based on Luke chapter 10, verse 2, that prayed that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the harvest fields. And then the other one is at 4.06 p.m., and that's based on Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, and that is where God says the day is coming where I will turn the hearts of the sons to the father and the fathers to the sons. And uh, so it's my time when I pray for prodigals. Those based on Luke 15, those pro- Jesus talked about the prodigal son who wandered away. And so uh, anyway, if you happen to think about it, you ever want to pray for a student not in this room or on this campus, you can pray for him. Uh, we love him very, very much. We just wish he loved Jesus. So um, having a son who's not walking with Jesus, though, has helped me love Jesus even more and to love lost people even more. I didn't think I could love lost people more. I really didn't. I mean, I've given my life to trying to see Muslims reconciled to Jesus. And then when my son walked away from the Lord, it just intensified that love to a whole nother level. And so the difficult things in our lives that we face, I think God wants to use them actually. He wants to redeem them. He wants to buy them back and give them purpose. Uh, you, you're doing Feed One, which is great. I, happy to see that you're doing that if you ever knew the story of hal Donaldson and his brothers you'd understand that his whole burden for taking care and feeding people and caring for them in their darkest most desperate moments comes out of his own personal pain as losing a father as a, when a young child and being with a single mother and four boys and having no money and having no food and so you see where feed one comes from god comes in and redeems the pain and buys it back, and so anything that you have faced in your life that you would have preferred not to face, just trust that God can and will redeem it if you will give it to him. I did want to talk about the gospel, but tonight, but before I do, I introduce you to most of our kids. He, left, he He left to go to school, and so we're kind of empty nesters now. So we adopted. There we am. Yeah. I know that there are dog lovers in the room and I'm not past sucking up, so, you know. Um, We lived in the Middle East where you can't really have dogs. Muslims don't like dogs, so Quran says bad things about dogs, so Muslims just don't basically have dogs. They don't like them, and um, we moved back to America to lead an initiative with Assemblies of God World Missions, and so we got a dog. Um, after our kids left home, and so they've never forgiven me for that, you know. that. Um, and then my daughter, how many, you guys have Andy's? Yeah. Okay, so you know what Andy's is. So, you know, you can go to Andy's and get a pup cone, you know. So I go to Andy's, I take my dog, get a pup cone, take a video, send it to my daughter in Egypt. She writes back and she goes, that is really cute. Who are you and what did you do with my dad? <laughs> uh, you know. And she said, you have gotten really soft in your old age. (laughs) And I said, honey, I chose softness. If you do life long enough, if you walk with Jesus long enough, if you do hard things in hard places, things will happen to you that will allow you the opportunity to choose softness or to become hard. The reality is, is that hardness is the natural tendency of the human heart. It takes a conscious effort to remain soft. So, tonight, I'm going to talk about the gospel and its implications in our lives. And, you know, I take all of this time. You, you might even ask, why'd you take so much time introducing yourself? Because I, I hope you understand it wasn't just to have fun. It was, and I love my family, but it was beyond that. I want you to understand. One, that I'm an incredibly ordinary person. I just, you know, love my wife, love my kids. I'm a normal dad. I Just all that stuff's normal. Uh, I don't know about you. I don't know about your academic background. I can tell you I'm the last person who really ought to be up here. Like when I graduated from high school, I had never read a book from cover to cover. I have multiple graduate degrees now. But it's because when Jesus saved my soul, he also saved my mind. I actually felt like God poured gasoline on my brain. And I wanted to learn everything. Not like just everything about the Bible. I wanted to learn everything. Because all truth is God's truth. And I wanted to just learn. And so I've spent a lot of time learning. And God doesn't want us to separate our hearts from our minds. We love God with all of our what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So tonight, some of you might be touched by in your heart by something. I say, I hope you're also touched in your mind. I hope your mind is stimulated by some of the things I will say because we, you know, a person who, our emotions are very, very important. If you don't have emotional response, then there's, you're, you're broken. But if you're, only emotional you're also broken and so you know our emotions make great slaves great servants they make terrible masters and so tonight i do want to focus probably primarily on your mind i want you to think through some things with me so i'm hoping that together we will make a difference in the world and by as we start down that path i want us to look at the gospel and i want us to look at two particular things about the gospel i'm assuming you know what the gospel is that you know we are incapable of pleasing god God in his great love for us while we were his enemies, sent his son to die for us, to redeem us, to buy us back from slavery. Not slavery that someone else had taken us slaves to, but the slavery that we had sold ourselves into. The of slavery of sin. So tonight I want to look at two elements of the gospel. I want to look at its universality and its exclusivity. In Romans chapter 12, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, we read this, and you've probably read this, you probably know this by heart. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a couple of things I want to focus on in this passage, three words primarily, or three phrases. The first one is everyone. That's the universality piece we're talking about. I love the universality of the gospel i mean god loves everybody doesn't care about race doesn't care about socioeconomic status doesn't care about nationality and quite frankly we shouldn't either if you are a christ follower none of those things should matter there actually should only be two categories in your thinking those who are in the kingdom and those who aren't in the kingdom yet I mean, my, my favorite sound in the entire world is the sound of my children laughing. And nothing makes me happier. I mean, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. My daughter's going to come back from Egypt. You know, my son from Laramie's going to drive over or fly over. So, anyway, well, he's going to get here. Uh, and we're going to have a great time. My parents are going to come up from Atlanta. My in laws tracked us down and moved to Missouri when we moved here. Um, hey, if the Catholics are right and there's a purgatory, I don't have to do it. Um, just saying, sorry. Sorry. Um, so, here we go. All of that to say, I love being around the table, love hearing my kids laugh, but I, I actually think that's kind of a good example of what God thinks of related to his view of the kingdom and its expansion. I think of this... You know one of the whether it's literal or figurative we get this picture in the the in the book of revelation of the that there one day it's going to be this grand banquet of the nations gathered around a table and you know every time we get ready to celebrate at our home i know that amy's going to say hey mark can you come help me put a leaf the leafs in the table because we need to make the table bigger the great thing about god and his table is it's ever expanding and he wants it always expanding. As a matter of fact, there are always empty chairs at the table of God. And he wants people constantly to join it. He wants people to join it from every nation and every tribe and every language. That's the terminology used in Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. That's the universality we're talking about. That God died for everyone. That the Father sends the Son while we were his enemies, to reconcile people from every single group to himself. God loves lost people. And if you are a Christ follower, you should too. Here's the part of the gospel I don't like. Is it okay to say that? Well, whether it's okay or not, I'm, I said it and I it's where i'm at i love the universality part of the gospel i don't really love the exclusivity part of the gospel the exclusivity part is the part go back for just a second to that romans you're doing a great job following me thank you but right here so everyone who calls on the name of the lord So salvation is both universal and exclusive. It's universal in that it's available for everyone, but it's exclusive in that it requires belief. So, we have to ask ourselves the question, what about those who've not heard? I wrestled with this. As a matter of fact, the answer to that question isn't I'm gonna kind of walk you through something really quick, but it's theological in nature. We'll do it really fast, but it's really important because it's under it's important that we get this. In Romans chapter one through and so Romans chapter one, two, and three, we basically see this unfolded. Romans chapter 1 starts off with those people that Paul refers to them as the Gentiles. He's talking about people that don't have access to scripture. So at that time, we're talking about Old Testament. They were not the Jewish people. They weren't the people of God at that time. They they had no scripture. The only revelation of God that they had was what theologians call natural revelation or general revelation. Revelation, so in other words, they walk outside. This is the wording of Romans chapter one. They walk outside at night You know, this is way before electricity Obviously, and so there's no light pollution They walk out into a Middle Eastern night where it's desert. They look up in the sky and they see thousands of stars I mean absolutely beautiful you know i've been out like in the desert parts of iraq and looked up at the sky and you could see the slur of the milky way i mean just stunningly beautiful but paul says that instead of worshiping the god you know the god part that was in their heart that said this didn't just happen i mean like you walk out you see something like that you understand there is some kind of creator behind this but in our hearts in their brokenness instead of crying out and worshiping the one who would create something like that paul says that we end up worship worshiping the creation instead of the creator paul goes on to state that general revelation that understanding of scripture like that or of of the of god through creation That's enough to convict, but it's not enough to save. Paul even says that their consciences bore witness, like they knew they were convicted. Get over to Romans chapter two, Paul talks about those who have access to, not the gospel at the time, but he's talking about the Jewish people who had access to scripture. And he says, those, the people of Romans one had no access to scripture and they were guilty because of general revelation and that they saw God in creation. He said, you, you have access to the scriptures and You are convicted because every time you tell, you say to somebody else, did you see what that guy did? Like every time you point your finger at somebody who has violated what you feel is some sort of injustice, you know, they've, crea- they've they've perpetuated some form of injustice, whether it be great or small. You've said they did something wrong. By saying that they did something wrong, you are acknowledging that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and by acknowledging that, you're actually condemning yourself. What Paul is saying is to the early church and through us, through the Spirit today, is that whether you have access to the Scriptures or you don't have access to the Scriptures, we're all guilty. That's what Romans chapter 3 goes on to say, is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That terminology used there is for sin is harmatia. It's the Greek word that... That literally means to miss the mark. You and I, I don't don't know about you. I don't put yourself in my shoes or myself in your shoes. But generally when I think of sin, I tend to think of an action that that I do. That's not the nature of the word for sin used in the New Testament. The word means to miss the mark. So think of a bullseye. With a very, very, very microscopic, you know, you target with a really microscopic bullseye in the middle. That bullseye is God's moral perfection. Scripture tells us that we are to be holy as God is holy. Now, what Paul is saying to the believers in Rome is that we all miss that mark. Every single one of us. So he goes on to say, because we've all missed the mark, because we've all not lined up to moral perfection, then we've violated God's law. So therefore, he, there, there must be law. Violators must have, there's punishment for For law violators and so basically says so because of that we're all he uses a strong word he actually says we're all cursed we're all condemned now it thank god it doesn't end there that's like okay the gavel has come down we've been found guilty the wonderful thing is, is that Romans 4 and 5 go on to say, it's Romans 5, 8, it says, While we were yet his enemies, God sends his son to die for us. He knew we could not pay the price for our own sin because it took someone who was morally perfect. A sacrifice of a sinner didn't pay for the sin of another sinner. It took the sacrifice of someone who was holy, morally perfect, sinless in order to pay for the price. And so Christ does it for us. God sends his son to be the sacrifice to buy us back out of our sin. That's the power of the gospel. I hope everybody in this room has not only understood that, but experienced that. If you haven't, tonight's the night to experience it. To understand that God, did, was, who is rich in mercy, bought you back from yourself. Like, we can't get out of our own way, and God provides a way for us. So we're, we're eternally damned because of our own sin, but God, who's great in mercy, sends his son to die for us so that we can be saved, not because we're good, not because we're anything, not because we're a part of a preferred people group, not because we live in a particular place, but out of his great love, out of his mercy, God sends his son, we get exposed to the gospel, we hear the message of the gospel, we respond, but as we've already looked at Everyone who believe But it has to be that part of calls On the name of the Lord So We have this challenge here We have That's in Romans chapter 10 verse 13 we talked about Earlier everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be Saved but verse 14 of that Passage goes says this But how do they believe in him In whom they have not heard and how do they hear without a preacher? And how do they preach unless they're sent? And that's where missions comes in. That's why we do what we do where we do it. So, I think we all understand in this room that God loves lost people wherever they are. We've already seen what the, the depth of God's love and and. The action to which he would go to redeem people. So it's not like God loves people in, you know, Missouri more than he loves people in Morocco. And it's not like he loves people in Morocco because they're lost more than Missouri. It's not an issue of lostness or it's not an issue of love. It's an issue of access. Access to the gospel. So, anybody in the room have a bent toward, like, entrepreneurialism? Like, want to start a business, that kind of thing? Anybody? A couple. That's, that's I, my brain's wired that way. I don't know why. I mean, I think the, the, the like, spiritual side of that is like an apostolic calling. You know, I, I'm, I'm, like, always wanting to start something new. I just, that's how my brain's wired. When I went to college, I was... Uh, went to college and then when I went back to college because I felt like God was calling me in the ministry And I, th- I thought I was going to be a pastor So I go to school uh, Found out tonight that James and I have something in common other than the fact that we seem to have the same barber um, um, That um, th- That we both are preacher's kids and you know, so I grew up in the church, all that. I, when I felt like God was calling in ministry, I just kind of assumed it was to be a pastor. And so I go back to school, I'm studying to be a pastor. And while I'm studying to be a pastor, one day a guy comes up to me and says, hey, we have this missions conference that happens here at the school every, every it happens two years and then there's a skip. So and anyway, I don't know if you've ever heard of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. They do this big thing in Urbana, Illinois every three years called the urbana conference it's a giant missions convention um, for university students about twenty thousand students show up well they do this thing in between uh every uh, every the two years in between the, they would do these regional conferences like our salts and so th- what their student led and this guy asked me he said hey would you be interested in leading this and i told him i was like why are you asking me to do this like i'm not going to be a missionary And he's like, well, we want people to understand that everybody plays a role in missions, whether they go or they stay. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll think about it. The reality is I said yes, but I know I said yes for the wrong reasons. I saw it as maybe something to go on my resume sort of idea. But you know, the great thing is, is that God's so much bigger than our brokenness. And so I said yes, because I do have a like a strong work ethic, and because if I'm going to do something, I want to do it well, I started reading about missions, and I started talking to missionaries when I get a chance, and I discovered there was this place in the world called the 1040 window. Anybody ever heard of that? All right, a few of you. So, if you think of the world, 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator from the west coast of Africa, so that would be like the countries of Mauritania and Morocco, all the way over to the eastern, far eastern side of Indonesia. It's 10% of the world's geography. So certainly not the, you know, it's a significant but not that big, 10%. Here's the weird part. Over 90% of the world's unreached peoples live inside of that window. Now, when I say unreached, just to talk missiologically for just a second, I'm not talking about lost people. We've already said God loves lost people wherever they're at. When I talk about unreached peoples, what I'm talking about is people who live in a place where they have zero access to the gospel. So... You're in this room tonight to some degree because somebody brought you. I mean, like you, you met somebody out on a table out on the campus, or you met somebody that, you know, a friend that invited you. Or, you know, you came from a church background and you knew to look for Chi Alpha when you got here. But there was some way you wound up in this room. And it had to do with the fact that there were other Christians here that you could fellowship with. Or for some reason you were brought here. Maybe even kicking and screaming. I don't know. But you wound up here. The people I'm talking about don't have anybody to drag them. Invite them, encourage them, share with them toward the gospel. They live in places where the kingdom of God is not yet present in any significant numbers. That's what it means to be unreached. In our world today, there are 14,000 unique ethno linguistic people groups. A people group is a sociological grouping through which a message can travel until it reaches a cultural, linguistic, or political boundary. So in other words, I have a message to share. As long as it's inside of my culture and my language, it can travel easily because it can just go from person to person. But once it gets to a place where there's a cultural breakdown like i'm saying the same words but it's not being understood like words have different meanings that's the difference between cultures if they share the same linguistic paradigm so they share the same language so there's a breakdown clearly if if there's a linguistic breakdown you know like i can't share the i don't know the language that's as far as it can go and then Political boundaries, you know, you get to a boundary, you can't go across that unless you have a visa. So, that's, just, that's what a people group is. So, there are 14,000 unique ethno-linguistic people groups in the world today. The gospel is present in, in significant numbers in 7,200 of those. Now, for the math majors in the room, you've already done, that means 6,800 of the world's 14,000 people groups remain unreached, 3.2 billion people. The largest religious affinity group inside of that are Muslims, and they're 1.8 billion people. So, we talk about access. I told you I was starting to learn about this thing, this 1040 window. I'd been wrestling with this understanding in Romans chapter 10 and finally understanding that, you know, God loves everybody. Jesus died for everyone. But the gospel must be be believed to be effective in a person's life. And the only way it can be effective in someone's life is if they actually hear it. And then that responsibility rests on the church. So here I am preparing to be a pastor. I'm wrestling with this. And all of a sudden, it, the reality, you know, I start thinking about, I told you I was like entrepreneurial in nature. The, I'm starting to think like a businessman who's going to go out and start a business. I know this analogy breaks down, so don't push it too far. But I, I was thinking like, You know, I I drive past church after church after church to get to my church of preference. If I were going to start a business, I probably would not go to the part of town where 14 businesses just like mine exist. At least not if I want to stay in business. I probably would go somewhere where my business was needed and there was an audience for it. And in that moment, God used that bent in my brain to help me understand that he had a calling on my life for something that was outside. It was to help solve the access issue. To take the gospel to those places where it didn't exist. Now, I don't know what you're thinking, but, you know, sometimes people think about something like a missionary calling and they think that it's supposed to, you know, it's got to be like something that's hyper-spiritual, like God shows up in a dream or you have a vision or, you know, something like that. And certainly, I'm not denying the fact that we do need to hear from God. One of the reasons we invite people to go on missions trips is because through that experience, you're isolated from your, your normal. You're in a new context, and in that context, the discomfort of it actually gives you an opportunity to hear from God in unique ways. That's one reason why we encourage you to go on a missions trip. But maybe there's some other things in your life that are breadcrumbs that you never realized were breadcrumbs to a calling. I mean, I don't know, anybody, you don't have to raise your hand here, but anybody like to travel? Maybe even the idea of like traveling abroad is interesting to you. Anybody like to, anybody like weird like me that likes to watch like, documentaries about other parts of the world and different people groups anybody like foreign food anybody in the room think taco bell is foreign food you're not called hey i like some taco bell but you know um Might it be, anybody in the room like foreign language? Might it be that these are actually breadcrumbs to a calling? See, here's the point. God was at work in your life when you were his enemy. And you didn't even know he was at work in your life. How do I know that? Because while we were his enemies... He sent his son to die for us. He redeems. He doesn't make us a different human being when he brings us to himself. He redeems the human being that we are. He takes our circumstances, our experiences, he buys them back, and he says instead of using them to serve you, meaning ourselves, as God, I want you to use those to serve me as God. I'm gonna close with this so I I you ever heard this this it's an old song um, you ever heard this old song called I surrender all A few of you have especially if you grew up in church um, I don't know if I'm, I'm, maybe I'm gonna ruin that song for you I I hate that you know, I actually did a, a search one time in the New Testament because I was dealing with this issue and I did this search. And, you know, the word surrender is not actually used anywhere in the New Testament in a positive way. It's only like used one time in the New Testament. It's used in a negative way. And I was like, what? But I thought I was supposed to surrender all to God. And I don't know about you, but like I, I love like Lord of the Rings You know and um i like the books but i really like the movies and um you know you you get this image in my brain i get this sort of like lord of the rings image and you know surrender is like this it's like a guy showing his army has been vanquished he's been defeated and he shows up before the king with his sword and he lays it down and he says i won't fight anymore and he bows his knee, that's surrender. That's not actually what God calls us to do. God calls us to submit. This is the difference. When you submit, you don't lay your weapons down. Instead, you come, you bow your knee, and you say, I used to fight my battles. Now, I'm here to fight yours. And that's what God wants you to do. God wants you to stop fighting your battles, and he wants you to start fighting his. Tonight we sang at least one song that used the word Lord. I think you get this, but there's only one response to Lord, and that's yes. One of my favorite writers is a guy who's been dead for a long time. I like to read these old dead guys, um, and part of that's because if if a if if a the writer's been dead for fifty years and people are still reading the book, it's probably worth my time because I don't I have limited time, like all of us. It's my one non-replenishable asset, so I want to use it well. So. I like to read these guys. One of these guys I like to read is an old guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. You know, Tozer had a bit of a wicked kind of edge to him. He used to say, Christians don't tell lies. They go to church and sing them. We sing songs about Jesus is Lord and then think we can say no. So tonight, here's what my request is for you. You may think as a missionary, you know, I want all of you to go out and serve as missionaries. And you would be wrong. I don't actually want that. I do know this, though. I think it's very safe to say that God is calling more people than are going. Because I told you about that window. That was 34 years ago that. I was first exposed to the 1040 window, 10% of the world's geography, 90% of the world's unreached people groups. What I didn't tell you was that at that time, the church was sending two, and I mean mean the global church, not like a particular part of it, the global church was sending 2% of its missionaries and 2% of its missionary money to reach 90% of the world's unreached peoples. That was 34 years ago. Guess what? The numbers have not changed. We're sending a few more missionaries, and for that I'm very, very thankful, but the problem is the population is also growing above our response. So, we need to respond. Now, What your response is, is unique, and it is tied to your personal obedience to Jesus and his calling on your life. I do believe in a group this size, there's at least three or four people that I believe God probably has his hand on and would like to see serving full-time as a vocation, as a long-term church planter in amongst the unreached. The most prolific Mission-sending organization in the world was a group of people called the Moravians They were led by a guy with like one of the coolest names ever count von Zinzendorf (laughs) He was from a very very wealthy family. He was captured by the glory of God basically gave up all of his money and his titles and everything and started leaving leading the Moravian Church at the height of their mission sending uh, activities they were out of every nine people one was going So do the math in this room about how many people would, that would mean for you guys? But here's the here's the interesting part so one out of nine that means 88% of the people stayed behind But here's the part that's important to understand They didn't feel like they got to get out of jail free card they understood they were called to the same mission as the one who was going. They just played a different role. So I believe that it would really glorify God. It would make him smile that five years from now, there are students from Simo Chi Alpha Serving in places like Japan Amongst the Buddhists who've not heard the gospel Maybe serving amongst the secular people of Western Europe Post-Christian Europe Perhaps serving amongst the Hindus of India Would do my heart really, really good If some of you were in a place like Doha, Qatar Anybody in the room a soccer fan? Dang. You guys are not working with me tonight. I just want you to know, you know. The World Cup in 2022 is going to be in Doha. Qatar is the wealthiest country in the world. Has a gross domestic product of about $80,000 per individual almost double the next closest country. Here's the staggering statistic, though, and that is that the only thing that supersedes Qatar's material wealth is its spiritual poverty because we only know of four believers in the entire country. There are more Starbucks in one mall in Qatar than there are Christ followers in the entire nation who are from Qatar. I think it would be really cool if some people from this Chi Alpha would go and join Joel and Suzanne Malik, who are also from a Chi Alpha background, and lead our team in Doha. And you're there because the other 88 percent of people in the room realized that they didn't get out of they didn't get a get out of jail free card, but they actually realized that they're in the marketplace because they're supposed to pray for and give generously so that you can do what you're called to do so tonight we're going to wrap this up I know I've talked longer than James normally talks I'm older so I I, you know just, just stack it up to that I'm sure he's a better communicator and next week you can come back and hear him But tonight, you at least heard something different. And you are responsible for what you hear. So tonight, I'm just going to ask for one response. And the response is unique to you, and that is that you do with this message whatever the Lord puts in your heart. But the pieces you have to wrestle with is there are people in this world today who will never hear the gospel unless people like us make the decision to leave the comfort of our homes, to leave the comfort of our cultures, to learn another language, to eat different foods, to move to a different part of the world so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can become indigenous in a local culture because we moved from ours to theirs. We left us to become part of them so that they could hear the message of the gospel. And that tonight, as we're going to pray, I'm just gonna ask that you would ask God what's my role in your global plan. And then I'm gonna ask that you do the next right thing. So whatever that is, maybe that's just saying, you know, I am gonna start I'm gonna look up Qatar on the like Operation World website and, and learn how I can pray for Qatar. Or maybe you know some missionaries in some place. You're going to pray for them. Maybe you're going to sign up for a missions, the virtual missions trip, so that you can learn about places like Japan and its people groups and what it would look like to be a missionary there. Whatever the response is, that's what I want you to do. I want whatever the Lord puts in your heart, I want you to respond to that. And I don't know about you, but for me, I do better when I have a little bit of accountability. So this is Chi Alpha, so I'm assuming you guys do small groups. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do is whatever the Lord puts in your heart, I'm going to ask that you would talk to somebody in your small group about what the Lord's put in your heart and that that way we can hold each other accountable. And, and preferably you would do that within the next 24 hours.